Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 15, When the Moon Hits Your Eye Like a Big Pizza Pie where we will be looking at chapters 33 through 35 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of infatuation. As a reminder, each week we will be examining a section of the book The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply it to our real lives. At the end, we will take time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text, expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Secondly, our discussions naturally assume that you have read The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, and are familiar with The Slow Regard of Silent Things and The Lightning Tree. But just in case you are not familiar with those works, from here on out, there will be spoilers. You have been warned. And of course, we'd like to remind you to be kind to one another, and let's try and make this world a gentler place. And now, for a recap. It's your turn. Hope you're prepared. I will not be eating raspberries. Someone didn't prepare today. Uh, outside knowledge. That's not character knowledge. <laughs> Sorry, I was playing the meta game. <laughs> All right, I've got a timer ready. And in you are you ready? I am as ready as I will ever be. All right, in three, two, one, go. Nothing really happens in this section except for Quoth stares at Denna for like three chapters. Four point three one seconds. And you're not wrong. I know. <laughs> <laughs> So while I know that maybe I wasn't terribly prepared for this, even when you have been prepared, hmm, and even when I give you 45 seconds back, you still failed last week. You know, I do this for the fans. They seem to so love seeing me suffer, so I meant to do that. Our fans such as uh, our wonderful friends down in Australia and New Zealand, I quote the poet Tom Lair, who said, And who deserves the credit, and who deserves the blame? The Kiwis' fate of Eisen with their podcast is their name. That's a quote? It's a paraphrase. Well, anyway, enjoy their suggestion for what cherry-flavored item you should be eating. I hope you guys are happy. <laughs> At least someone will be. I don't know, I might like it. Weirdo. Well, anyway, audio from that is inserted here. Hi, Waystone family. <laughs> this is a serious video, and I know we're oftentimes talking about very frivolous subject matter. And so it brings me no joy to say that I'm being punished. I've committed the grave offense of going over my allotted time. I know what I did was wrong. And I wish I could say that I won't do it again, but I know me and I probably will. 
hopefully though, it'll be a long time from now. So we have to deal with the fact that I'm gonna have to eat cherries. I hope you're happy. Very. To preface this a little bit, our friends at Fate of Eisen, the Kiwi D&D podcast, have recommended that we try something that is very divisive, even among cherry-loving folk, which is this concoction called Cherry Ripe. I'm a little terrified of this, to be honest. If I die from all of this... I get your new guitar? You already have one. Um, <laughs> if I die from this, Fate of Eisen, it's your fault. It's your fault. You can have all of my debts. But I'm the one with student loans. He's joking. But I'm really not. But he really is. Not. <laughs> <laughs> For full disclosure, we here in the Pacific Northwest of the United States had to rely on Amazon Australian candy. It's a little out of date, so if it's stale, don't let that affect your ability to enjoy it. The weird thing is that it came on one day delivery, which means that somewhere Jeff Bezos just has a whole bunch of out of date Australian candy, just hoping someone will order it. I don't know whether I should be respectful or terrified of that. Now Phoenix is also a curious sort, so she agreed to try some as well. So the ingredients to this, ripe juicy cherries and coconut in old gold rich dark chocolate. Sugar, coconut, glace cherries? I'm not sure. It's cherries, wheat, glucose syrup, color, acidity regulator. <laughs> I've never seen that one. But yes, also chocolate and a whole bunch of things that is just going like the, the it's this much stuff. It's that. I'm so. terrified. <laughs> All right, so. I don't think there's any point in prolonging this. So let's see what we got. It's chocolate. I mean. We like Tim Tams. That's also from Australia. Those are really, really, really good. I know there's no cherry in it, but. Yeah. Let's... Ham it up, psych yourself out. Uh, I can already smell like that cherry syrup flavor. Ugh. It smells like chocolate. What's wrong with you? Mm. It's coconut. It's like a mountain bar, but with cherry in it. Two strikes. What's wrong with you? You can have the rest of this. Nope. Please. Nope. nope. What? You boasted. Of what? That you would make it within the 45 seconds. This is vile. Been wonderful. Anyway. What? I'm very good. I'm gonna eat the rest of those, but not all the ones sitting. I promise. Weirdo. Oh my god. <laughs> Who did I marry? <laughs> one of my friends yesterday actually said that this was one of her favorite candies from Australia. It's lousy. This is ruining dark chocolate. I love dark chocolate. Why would you ruin it? <laughs> Why? Didn't the first one ruin dark chocolate? Yes. Why do they keep doing it? Well, on that wonderfully indignant note, ham it up. Not no. chuck it up. No. I got it. It would be really mean of you to I got it. chuck up your punishment on our guest bed. I'd make you clean it up. 
Thanks. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. And we're back. So from here on out, we will be discussing three chapters worth of both staring at Denna. Yeah. But we will probably still take just as long as normal. There's a lot to unpack here. There is. And uh, I don't think it's very flattering of Quoth. I would be inclined to agree with you. We're looking at this through the lens of infatuation, which is not uncommon for young teenagers to experience. And it's often mistaken for love. Part of why I wanted to look at this through infatuation is, yes, Quoth's infatuation with Denna. But there's also Quoth's infatuation with the university and his infatuation with Jocelyn's loot. Ooh, you took this in an even deeper direction than I was anticipating. I'm excited. Tell me more. Well, we start off with him speaking lovingly and boastfully about a cloak. He talks about his cloaks often. He laments their losses He always talks about how much he loves little pockets in his cloaks. And he's always complimentary of the idea of them. And all I can think is Watchmen and the revolving door and Dollar Bill getting his cape stuck in it. Yeah, you get a sense that Quoth's love of cloaks has more to do with his own little vanities and obsessions than any actual practical merits that they might have. Like he talks about how they look cool when they billow in the breeze. He also talks about keeping little objects in his pockets, which kind of speaks to me because I keep little fidgets. He has a marble in a little bag in his pocket. There is no reason for him to have that. There is absolutely no reason for him to have spent any money on that. And yet, it's in his pocket. Yeah, it seems like the inventory one might expect from an early 90s adventure game. To bring it back to episode (laughs) 9. Now, I'm not saying that cloaks have no utility. What I'm saying is that Kvothe is overly fond of his. And a lot of it boils down to he thinks he looks cool in it. True. Speaking of he thinks something is cool, I have to say the use of the word fripper... I think it's just because Patrick Rothfuss really liked it. I also think he likes saying pockets. I think that Patrick Rothfuss might like things with a lot of pockets. And to be fair, I like things with a lot of pockets. And it is a cruel, cruel world that we live in because pockets in things that are made for people with hips, typically women, are tiny Because for some reason, we're not supposed to enjoy having things in our pockets. We are supposed to enjoy our lines of our clothing looking smooth. Why? I couldn't tell you. I really don't give a crap what my pockets look like. Yeah, I kind of get the impression that Patrick Rothfuss wears cargo shorts 24 by 7. I would too. Provided that I could find a pair of cargo shorts where the pockets were actually pockets and not just a sewn-on detail. Bringing it back to infatuation, you mentioned the university, and I think here is a very illustrative example of the difference between infatuation and love. Because infatuation is about liking the idea of something. And oftentimes, 
that idea is one that you have constructed in your own mind from incomplete information. He has this longing to go to the university without ever having been there, without ever having been in the same city, only having met one person who has ever been there and having heard that one person talk about it. It's sort of a secondhand thing that he's built up in his mind. Like there were whispers about it when he was a little kid. He clearly knew that the university was a thing, but he didn't know any details about it. Right. He'd never seen what the entrance process was like. He's never had any idea of how much it costs. He doesn't even know who the teachers are. He doesn't even necessarily know what a class is going to be like. Clearly, once we get there. I mean, he's basically a kid who's been homeschooled his entire life, and then he finds himself within the greater higher education system. That's a rough adjustment. We have had a few friends who have gone through that process. There's always a little bit of a adjustment, and you can almost always tell a kid that has been homeschooled. They're used to having direct one-on-one communication with their professors at all times. Also known as probably their parents. Right. They're used to having the entire curriculum built around them and tailored specifically to their learning style and where they are. They are typically used to being able to freely skip a class that they already have the knowledge for because they have instructors who can just say, yeah, you already know this, we're going to move on. Well, that being said, you went to a very small private school, and your teachers probably did a little bit of adjustment around the abilities of all of the people. How big was your class size typically? In a given class, you would have anywhere between 3 and 20. And I'm assuming that the ones where there were three people... Your teachers didn't just sit there and force you to learn things you already learned that they've already explained? No. But if it was something that we especially hated doing, they would make sure that we did it. Because they knew that, hey, us hating to do it usually meant there was a challenge to do it, and we had to get good at it. So he's got this idea built up in his head about what he thinks the university is, and he's enticed by this idea of a boundless archive that you could just go into and pick up any book, find any subject, and it's all very romanticized and, as we will see, has very little to do with the actual doings of a university. Right, and I actually appreciate that a lot. I like that Kvothe does not sail through everything. For one reason, because Quoth is kind of an idiot. He thinks he's so much smarter than he is. And we come up against that again and again and again in this next few chapters. It hurts his pride to know that he doesn't know everything. Yeah, we see an example of this when he gets angry at himself for not knowing how the Shaldish culture works regarding the gendered role of money and who can give it and who can take it. That reaction does not reflect well on him. He feels like he should be more cultured, never mind the fact that he's 15, never mind the fact that he spent the last three years living on the streets. Of course he doesn't know everything. How could he expect to? 
it's almost the same idea behind someone who really likes anime thinking that they know everything about Japanese culture. Right. Okay, honesty time here. When I was about both age, 15, 16, I watched a lot of anime, or a lot of what anime was available stateside without a super fast internet connection. And I thought I knew a fair amount about Japanese culture. I knew nothing. I don't know much more now than I did then, but I do know exactly how little it is. Right. And I think that what Kvothe is lacking is self-awareness. And what I think happens to him is every time that he is given the opportunity to learn about himself, he gets upset. Especially when that learning about himself is that he doesn't know everything. Yeah, he's yet to learn true wisdom. He would be judged a Socratic fool. It's, I think, one of his central character flaws. Every character has a flaw and a good story. And I think this is one of his major flaws. And what I appreciate is that this flaw doesn't just go away. And he doesn't go through his entire story without consequence for it. Really what we see is this flaw morphing and evolving with him. As new events transpire and he learns new lessons, this flaw changes its form. But it's all coming from that central root of his belief in his own exceptionalism. His conception of himself, I think that's also a form of infatuation. He's in love with this idea of himself as the heroic protagonist who wins the day and gets the girl, and he can't bear to confront the actual truth of who he is. One thing I do appreciate about this book is that although there is a central push-pull between him and Denna, it doesn't seem like a romance between them, like a real romance between them, is inevitable. I agree. And a large part of that is Kvothe has a very hard time moving beyond the superficial level of infatuation. As we see here, he is not wanting to betray any of his true feelings. He's afraid that if he tells her too much about who he is, she'll reject him. He's afraid to be vulnerable. That's not what love is. Love is about stripping away that ideal version of yourself. And that ideal version of your partner. Exactly. Love is when you move beyond just having an object of infatuation to an actual partnership. The way that you said that, okay, so... There have been multiple instances already. Kvothe refers to Denna as the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. And I would like to just say that that makes me want to vomit. And not in a good way. I will hold the bucket for you. I agree. It's gross. It's not a good look. I get it. He's a teenager who's absorbed his entire life through these stories. That's the only way he's been able to make sense of these relationships. And his only example of any of that is coming from these idealized versions of who his parents were. But at the same time, it's a severe deficiency on his part. He's so caught up in the idea of who he thinks people are 
that he's not able to actually see them as they truly are and appreciate them as they are. He seems blind to Denna's faults, and she has them because she's a person. People are complex. And while a lot of criticism can be pointed at Denna's lack of character, because in some ways she is a little flat, I think we can also attribute a little of that to the fact that we are seeing Denna and a lot of other characters through Quoth's eyes. And Quoth does not imagine people complexly. He doesn't give others the same benefit of the doubt that he would ask for himself and that he is constantly asking for himself. As we've discussed, his central problem is his narcissism, his belief in his own exceptionalism. He believes that he is better than everyone. He literally believes that. He believes that the world revolves around him. And naturally, his assumption of what love looks like is someone thinking that he is as awesome as he thinks he is. And he doesn't have to put in any of the work. He doesn't have to make himself vulnerable. He doesn't have to let them be vulnerable around him. And we'll see this over the course of the books, even into Wise Man's Fear, when he and Denna become closer, when she does reveal herself to him, he hurts her. He criticizes her. He tries to poke holes in her version of a story. Because once again, he trusts other people's accounts over her. He doesn't let her actually be vulnerable around him. And he doesn't let himself be vulnerable around her because he's afraid that if she sees who he is, she'll run away. I think that she's seen who he is. Oftentimes the lies we tell about ourselves are as illustrative of who we truly are as any truth that we might tell. I think she understands that about him. And honestly, I think she can do better than him. I think that's true, but I think she can do better than a lot of the people that she has herself been infatuated with. She seems to go through life building on these infatuations and enjoying them as they last. And then as soon as anything moves beyond the level of infatuation, it gets too real and she disappears. Now, by beyond that level of infatuation, it can be actual love or what's a budding romance, a budding love, because I don't think she ever lets it get to actual love. But it can also be controlling behavior. Once it gets to a controlling, I own you level, she bolts, which I think speaks highly of her in those situations that she doesn't allow herself to just become trapped because she maintains her control over the situations. This is both a positive and a negative because she is unwilling to relinquish any control. Which is also the same problem that Kvothe has. I think they're mirrors of one another. And in terms of mirrors of one another, I don't think that Denna is as young as she appears. Much the way that Coat appears older and sometimes that facade breaks. There's a time where Denna looks over at Kvothe and she looks 10 years older by arching an eyebrow. And then suddenly she was young again. I don't know if that's something that is strictly 
literal or if that's just something that Quoth is perceiving? From what we understand later when Diok speaks of Denna, Denna has traveled to Emre before. She has courted people in Emre before. There seems to be history there that belies her age, or at least Quoth's perception of her age. I don't think that she is anywhere near as young as Quoth is. I think Quoth oftentimes plays up his age and tries to look older as well. I think this also sort of speaks to how men are encouraged to look older through various means, whether that's growing a beard or how they cut their hair, things like that, whereas women are encouraged to appear younger. Because appearing younger makes us look more attractive, which is bullshit. It might just be that, but I'm wondering if there's a little bit of a supernatural element around her age. She may be of fey origin. It could be just she has access to some sort of magic as an otherwise normal person. We don't really know. And Quoth never really shows any interest in that. He never interrogates it. He never asks who this person is, and he never lets her actually reveal herself to him. He covers that up a little bit by saying that he could sense that there was a past that she didn't want to speak about, and that she also didn't ask him, once again mirroring his behavior. While that may be fine on a first date, he never gets past that. He's always so worried about pushing her away. The thing is, she goes away anyway. Meanwhile, when she's around any other dude... He gets incredibly jealous and possessive, and even as he knows that she doesn't belong to anyone. Much less him. Right. We see our first example of this with Josen, who he irrationally hates just because Dennis spending time with him. This whole thing feels possessive, again with Denna being a thing. Spending a few nights speaking to one another about nothing does not entail a deep relationship, much less a deep romantic relationship. Not at all. They've barely even hit the point where they're friends. And he's somehow conflating this as some great love, as some great romance. At this point, he's just someone that she enjoys spending time with. And she's just someone that he enjoys spending time with. They haven't done anything for one another. They haven't expressed any kind of concern for one another. Neither of them have made any sacrifices for the other. Neither of them have decided to reveal any secrets about themselves. Neither of them have decided to do anything beyond just this shallow first date bullshit. I'd argue, though, that not all friendships need to be that deep to be friendships. No, they don't. But usually it takes time to build them up. You know, I've said before, I don't think Foth is actually a very good friend to even people that he isn't romantically interested in. I mean, look how he treats Sim and Will. Yeah, as much as people like Will and Sim, Foth is a terrible friend to them. He doesn't write. He doesn't call. He doesn't do things for them. He doesn't ask after them. He doesn't tell them, oh yeah, by the way, I'm not dead. Right. That's why you leave a note. <laughs> He doesn't do anything for them. 
he just asks them to help him out on his various capers and misadventures. Seriously, he is the worst kind of friend. Why do they do things for him? Right! He can't be that much fun. He's just vaguely charming and they always have good music when he's around. And that's the end of it. But they're perpetually risking their academic careers for him. They're risking injury and possibly death for him. If not excommunication from the realm. Right. Because he, of course, chooses as his enemy a person with massive influence. And he still doesn't learn the lesson of not to poke the bear. Yeah. Instead, he just goes and says, Hey, Will. Hey, Sim. Can you poke this bear with me? Again, the real villain of Tom and Jerry is Jerry. (laughs) And he is basically Jerry with a gang who, for some reason, help him out on his capers. Quoth is not good at forming relationships with people because he specifically thinks about them in terms of what they can do for him. I would argue that the only person he has built a real, honest, vulnerable relationship with in this whole story is Ari. Ari's the only one he's been vulnerable around. Yeah. Ari is the only person that he actually treats like a friend. She's the only person that he actually does things for actually does things for that she needs like he goes on his whole mad caper to find denna's ring or whatever but that's as much about poking ambrose and his own petty rivalry there as anything else it's not about denna it's not actually about what denna wants or needs it's about his own vanity and jealousy and because Kvothe isn't good at actually making friendships he's terrible at making relationships He doesn't actually let people see him. Now, I would argue that many people probably see him better than he thinks they do. And they can see when he's keeping things from them. And they decide, that's not for me. Yeah. I have a friend, someone that I was actually infatuated with, who was very boastful about things that he had done when he was a teenager. And at that point, he was no longer a teenager. It was almost half his life away. And it was the same stories every time he decided he needed to tell a story that was supposed to make him look good, I guess. He reminds me a lot of Quoth's character. Boastful about things that most people don't care about once they hit a certain age. Forming relationships that treat the other person as less than a complex human being. I think he's gotten out of that a little bit, but we've kind of grown apart, so I don't know a lot about that. Last time we ran into him, he didn't really talk about stories from high school, so... That's a plus. (laughs) But, yeah, like, the central journey that Kvothe really needs to go on is to get over himself. I think he's getting there. I think that there is some character growth, but not so much that I would actually say that he is himself a complex human being. I think that also the quote of the framing device, coat as it were, has a little more self-awareness than quote of the stories. I'd agree with that. Part of that is just the product of time. I know I sound like I really am hard on quote and that I really dislike him. And a large part of what I dislike about him are things that I dislike about myself that I've seen myself do. 
when I was a kid, I got infatuated with girls. And I built up these narratives in my head about how we were really supposed to be together. But the fact is, anytime we actually were trying to spend time around one another, I was so wrapped up in trying to be cool that I could never actually listen to them. Speaking of not listening to another person that you were in a conversation with, there's a point in this section that that speaks to quite well. I sometimes lost the sense of her words in the sweet fluting of her voice. He stopped listening to her and basically just heard her speaking. And instead of it being like a buzz, kind of a noise of like, I'm not listening to you, it's more like a sweet music that he is also not listening to. Nice Charlie Brown reference. (laughs) Well, and that's exactly it. This is someone who has given us a running commentary on the contents of his purse throughout this entire story. And here he is just montaging their conversation as if that can be a substitute for growth. (laughs) That is true. In all of this, as he's telling the story to Chronicler, he's trying to do a narrative shortcut here. It's horse hockey. Right. He doesn't actually describe her. He just says that she's beautiful. And the extent of it is, picture the most beautiful person you've ever seen. Now double it. (laughs) Right. And Bast even calls him out on it. And Kvothe is like, no, she was beautiful. I swear. Which makes me question that. Though, one thing I would like to point out is I do think, in some ways, Denna is like a siren. I think she calls specifically to men because every man that she comes in contact with seems to instantly become infatuated with her. And she usually takes them for a ride. That's how she lives. That's how she has money. That's how she has food. That's how she has shelter. I think it's interesting that Quoth's first interaction with her really is trying to figure out where she's going. And she says she doesn't even know. And she says, I think it's to Annalyn. And then lo and behold, another day goes by. They take on another passenger on the caravan. And that particular person who is now head over heels infatuated with Denna is going to Annalyn. You wonder if that was Josen's plan all along, or if he just decided, you know what, this sounds like fun. Or if it was his plan all along, if Denna was called to go to Annalyn with him. I think that there's a little more mysticism around Denna than Kvothe is giving credit to. And I actually just had a thought here. One of the things that Haliak says to Cinder is, who protects you from the Sith and the Singers and the Amir? And so that means that there is a group called the Singers who is apparently a threat to the Chandrian. And I wonder if Denna is somehow affiliated with them, perhaps. We haven't heard a whole lot of interrogation about the Singers, whoever they are. Much like we haven't heard a lot of interrogation about Denna herself. Precisely. Now, the singers, I don't think, was capitalized, so it might not be a proper noun. A lot of folklore is told by song. 
It could just be singers, and it could be something more. Indeed, and as we see, she will be eventually composing a song about the Chandrian. There are some interesting things at play with Denna, and I think that she definitely has a greater significance to the story beyond just being Kvothe's love interest, and I use that term very loosely. I think she is more important than that. And I also think that many of our problems that people have with Denna are really problems with Quoth, because he is our narrator. A lot of the things that he describes are really problems of him. To bring it back to Denna a little bit, both Denna and Ari are associated with the moon a lot. If you think about how Denna travels, here and there and everywhere, and sometimes she's gone. She comes in and out of close light, like the phases of the moon. That fits. But Ari is also associated with the moon. If you see any of the artwork that depicts Ari, there is a lot of her with the moon. And she's only ever seen under the night sky. I don't want to assume that Ari and Denna are related or the same person or two sides of the same coin. That's not what I'm insinuating. I do think they are distinctly individual people. But I think the parallels between them are not narrative accidents. I'd agree with that. One thing that I'd also like to point out, with Quoth acting like he is so smart, he tells Denna about the constellations. He tells Denna about their names, as though he is providing information she has no idea about. And then she tells him stories about them that he had never heard before. I get the feeling that Denna is almost timeless. Again, to point out how Quoth is completely an idiot here, this is someone who claims that stories are the most important thing in the world and who goes out of his way to tell us every story that he hears later on in the book, no matter how dumb that story might be. And here is someone telling him stories he's never heard before about these great constellations, and all he can do is montage it. A forking montage. Some great lover this guy is. He can't even listen to stories, and he can't even pay attention enough to them to actually recount them. I think it's really telling that he is at least aware that he could not provide her anything. I don't think that he can provide her anything emotionally. I don't think that he can provide her anything financially. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Um, I don't think that he can even provide her anything interesting. He has a talent for music. We see that when he gets to take up the lute from Josen briefly. But he's never willing to actually be vulnerable or include people in his actual life. The lute, I think, is an interesting passage. If I put my guitar down for a week, it takes me a long time to get back to where I was at the beginning of the week. It takes a little bit of time for my muscle memory to put my fingers back in the right places for chords. Now granted, I'm a novice. But Kvothe has been away from a lute for three years, and he's only 15. Yes, he's a savant. I'd also argue, though, that if this story was centered around a woman or a girl, 
if she hadn't picked up a lute in three years and could instantly play the most beautiful music ever, there would be a shirt ton of sexist comments. Gatekeeping. And there would be all kinds of things trying to subtly put down her abilities. I'm not even sure that that would be the case in the story. I'm talking about the audience. Oh yeah, people would be calling her a Mary Sue. Right. But Kvothe gets a pass. Yeah, he doesn't deserve one. He's a jerk. He has more respect for the loot than he does for Josen, who is the loot's owner, and then he does for Denna, who he treats like an object. And even still, he can't resist negging the loot. His father would have judged it only a step above firewood. I think that that has more to do with Kvothe's opinion of Josen. And really, that opinion is, as we know, deeply suspect. Yes. Also, his infatuation with his ability to just instantly remember how to do complex tasks. It seems like it should have taken longer. Things break away in his mind. And I like the language. It's very evocative. This section, while we're kind of nitpicking on Foth and being critical of the characters, has a lot of beautiful sentences, a lot of beautiful writing. It's meant to make us feel like this whole section is very romantic. It's not. It's kind of gross. Yeah. His description of how he felt like he needed this, it's almost like an addict at this point. He's suddenly seeing the object of his addiction for the first time in years the thing he's addicted to which in this case is just being able to play music and don't get me wrong i love our musical instruments i love playing but at the same time he lets his own quote need override any concern for his hosts for the people who actually own said instruments for his audience he is completely self-absorbed in all of this Some of the things that he's said in this section, especially about the lute, how it's rude to ask to borrow somebody else's musical instrument or how that musical instrument is much like a lover or asking to kiss somebody else's wife. That's very possessive and it's also a whole lot of bullshit. And the reason I say that is because we are in a room full of musical instruments We can each really only play one at a time. Some people are talented and can play more than one at a time. We are not those people. But I would definitely let anyone that wanted to play one of my other instruments that I wasn't playing. Now, the thing that I do find a little objectionable is that he retuned the lute and he didn't care that it was bothering Josen. Because I wouldn't want someone to retune my guitar. I do that. (laughs) And if I like something a little bit sharper, a little bit flat, which, I mean, I don't, but if I did. Well, what if you had it deliberately down-tuned? And then someone comes in and says, oh, this isn't the standard tuning that I like, so I'm going to fiddle with it here. It's like coming into somebody's home, going into their kitchen, and rearranging their dishes. Mm. 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 I don't like that. Kvothe acts like he owns the world. But it's that sort of thoughtless 
concern for only his own immediate needs and desires without even taking into consideration how other people are feeling or are affected by his actions. At the end, Josen just is staring like he is stricken. I don't even necessarily know that he was. I think that that's something that Kvothe wanted to say so that it could sound like he was rubbing Josen's nose in it. Possibly. The other thing is, Kvothe's abilities might be different than Josen's. Josen's abilities might not be that bad. They might be quite good, but Kvothe is probably different. And I know that I might be slack-jawed if somebody took my guitar and made it sound like the notes were singing. But I would also be like, could you just show me how you did that? Yeah, if I were to meet some random person on the street, well, I have my guitar around, and they start playing and it's super good, and it turns out it's Steve Vai. I'm going to be, yeah, staring in slack-jawed amazement because, one, Steve Vai wanted to play my guitar, and two, he's doing things with it that I don't even know how he's doing that. And I can't even begin to emulate it. But still, I would be thrilled to have witnessed that. And I think Kvothe, because he's unable to get beyond the world as he perceives it, and we already know that he's predisposed to believe that Josen's a jerk, even though we have no objective evidence of any of that, he's going to read everything that Josen does in the most unfavorable light. So when Josen looks at him in amazement or whatever, it's he looked like he was shocked and, and horrified and appalled at what I just did to him. Oh yeah, I wrecked his day. Also, it speaks to Kvothe probably being possessive over his own items. Now, he has very little. And when you have very little, it is easy to want to hoard it and to be possessive over the five things you possess. But honestly, like if somebody came into our house and picked up a book and started reading it, I'd be happy. I'd probably send them home with it. I think Kvothe is projecting a lot of his own possessiveness onto Josen. I think part of it is because Kvothe is unable to imagine that anyone would be able to view things differently from how he does. I mean, we see this when he talks about Rowan and Rita. He's unable to comprehend how Rita could give him a jot for being useful on the road, even though, I'm going to point this out, we have absolutely no evidence of this at all. <laughs> we have, he again, this is someone who has gone about painstakingly describing all of these horrible circumstances and these things, and then she said, I was useful. I was able to hitch a wagon or whatever. We haven't heard any evidence of him doing anything to help at all. I mean, I'm calling bullshit on that. I do want to say one other thing before we get to a, a little space to wrap up. Well, there's a couple of little things I want to actually talk about. One pretty big thing, but one little thing. When Dinah talks to Kvothe and says, you could come to Annalyn with us. Josen says he doesn't mind if you teach him how to use his loot. That speaks actually to Josen not being a jerk and not being possessive and not being so prideful that he wouldn't want to learn from this upstart little 15-year-old that just showed him up on his own instrument. Yeah, Steve Vai shows up and I have the opportunity to talk with him. Damn well right I'm taking a lesson. 
<laughs> and on to the big thing. When they part ways, Quoth says, I'll see you where the roads meet. Now, I run our social media, including our Instagram. And I enjoy looking through things that are tagged for the wise man's fear and the name of the wind and the King Killer Chronicle. It's kind of awesome to see some people making art about this book that I absolutely adore and to see all of the covers for the book that are not from the United States. And I maintain the covers for the U.S. versions of these books are so boring, especially when you look at everywhere else. Anyway, but completely appropriate timing. There's a person that was practicing their calligraphy and they list a quote from chapter 36 of The Wise Man's Fear. There is a place not many folks have seen, a strange place called Ferineal. If you believe the stories, there are two things that make Ferineal unique. First, it is where all the roads in the world meet. Second, it is not a place any man has found by searching. It is not a place you travel to. It is the place you pass through on your way to somewhere else. They say anyone who travels long enough will come there. This is a story of that place and of an old man on a long road and of a long and lonely night without a moon. Interesting. That's a really interesting symmetry there. Yep. And that, I think, also is very telling. He says, I'll see you where the roads meet. And that where the roads meet is a place that you can't get to by looking to get there. And yet, at the same time, one of the central things that Quoth is most annoying about is going looking for Denna. And he never finds her when he's looking for her. And it's a dumb thing to say, well, I'm going to go look for Denna. That's just the thing I do. I'm going to go look for one person who could be anywhere in the four corners in the one city that is adjacent to my school. <laughs> and he even, I think, on some level knows it. Oh, he acknowledges it. I think that's the limit of how much we can dig into Kvothe and Denna at this particular moment. We'll have plenty of other opportunities later. Yes, we will. But for now, on to our Fronimos. So I'd like to preface mine with a poem, and it goes like this. At Frank's Fun Zone, we have a rule. When it's your birthday, you're always cool. Parents, kids, it's all the same. Now watch while I do a dance to your name. Derek. Derek. That's right, our friend Nemos this week is Derek. <laughs> Derek. Yes, Derek. So I'm specifically thinking of the sequence where Kvoth is worried that Rita will get in trouble for giving him money. And then Derek explains that in Shaldish custom, men don't give out money. That is something that women do. And that it's only something that would be done with consultation with Rowan about it, that it would be part of their partnership. One of the interesting things about this is that it highlights the way that things that may seem strange from one point of view, from one set of cultural assumptions, may be perfectly logical from a different worldview, from a different tradition. And 
it's something that I think that oftentimes blocks us from really seeing things as they are and really seeing people as they are, is we think that our cultural constructs and assumptions are facts. And we look at everything through a lens of our own social constructs. Exactly. And Derek rather matter-of-factly points out that they just do it differently. That's just their way. It's presented in a value-neutral statement. This is how their people do things. Maybe we agree with it, maybe we disagree with it, but that's what they do. And so you have to just accept that that's where they're coming from. From a certain point of view, that could be seen as mildly sexist or more than mildly sexist, but I don't read it that way. I read it as custom, which I think that Rita being the person she is depicted as, I think that she is a strong-willed individual, even from the little bits of the story that she appears in. I don't think that Sheldish custom and the idea of looking womanish, I don't know that that is necessarily inherently sexist based on the culture that they live in. Because honestly, it should only be a problem for the people who are affected. Our assumptions about what other people are doing are necessarily coming through our own sets of constructs. And it's always handy to be mindful of the things that we assume are true, but aren't necessarily true. Or aren't necessarily true for all people involved. I think Derek is a good reminder of that. I do like that he's not passing a value judgment. I think that that is a fair for Nemos. And it was also an excuse to trot out a Brooklyn Nine-Nine quote. Is that everything you wanted to say on the matter? Yep. All right, then it's time to move on to our interesting fact. I believe it is your turn this week. I agree with you. It is my turn. I didn't forget. Unlike some other parts of this that I kind of did. So, interest me. Did you know that humans are the only animal that cries emotional tears? Emotional tears actually have a different chemical makeup than tears that flush irritations out of our eyes or tears that protect and lubricate our eyes, which are known as reflex tears and basal tears, respectively. Emotional tears contain more proteins, like stress hormones, cortisol, and natural painkillers than other types of tears do. All three types of tears are created by the same glands in our eyelids, but only emotional tears are initiated by the hypothalamus, which regulates emotional responses. Did you find my fact interesting? Yes, I did. No raspberries for you. Says the person who I think is just now remembering that we are going to be recording his next punishment later this afternoon. Don't remind me. Thank you. You're welcome. And now we come to seven words. This time you are reading from the book. Correct. So this is a pretty simple one. I'll see you where the roads meet. Yes. And this is a great little send-off that Quoth gives Denna, and it's something that I think he would do well to remember. There's speculation that where the roads meet is Ferenial, which is a location that he talks about in Wise Man's Fear. 
And the important part about Ferreniel is that it's a place that you can't look for. That it's a place that you just come to naturally. And I think there's something about saying, I will see you when our paths cross again. And just being able to let that go as it is without trying to force those paths to cross. I do note that every time that Quoth ever tries to force their paths to cross, he fails. And she does too. Absolutely. And it leads to some of the most frustrating sections of the book. Of the books. (laughs) And (laughs) there's something about just letting people go their way, knowing that if you're going to meet up again, you will. Being willing to just accept that. I think that's something that he would do well to remember. I do like that. I also highlighted that. I know it wasn't my turn for the books, but, you know, sometimes I like picking those seven-word sentences out. And Denna tends to bring out the seven-word sentences. We now have a cat meowing outside our door. Nope, not seven words. (laughs) Podcats. This is what we get for letting her in this room. (laughs) So yeah, those are my seven words from the book. What are your seven words from life? Our cat is (laughs) meowing outside the door. (laughs) (laughs) It was going to be something else. It really was. (laughs) Oh. Muffins. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and now Sokka has chased Leela off, and I actually felt him jump off of something outside in the hallway. <laughs> but yes, our cat is meowing outside the door. It is said that when a cat is at your feet meowing, that is the universe smiling at you. Aw, that's really cute. I mean, the door is kind of near my foot. (laughs) And I think that's all we can say about that. Yep. So with that, we come to the end of our episode. Thanks for potting with me, Phoenix. Thanks for potting with me, too. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapter 36 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of gatekeeping. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for creating our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get our show notes, early access to episodes, Patreon-only bonus pods, custom digital posters, and other exciting items. You can also follow us on the socials at waystonepod on both Twitter and Instagram. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses.
only emotional tears are initiated by the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus? I can't say it. I'm saying it with like a weird twang. I know, right? <laughs> Hypothalamus. <laughs> Hypothalamus. <laughs> All three types of tears are created by the same glands in our eyelids, but only emotional tears are initiated by the hypothalamus. I can't do it. <laughs> oh, God. Hypothalamus. <laughs> I found her outtake. <laughs> hypothalamus? <laughs> Would you like some mayonnaise on your hypothalamus? It's really Midwestern. <laughs> like it's not even a twang. It's like a Minnesota thing. Hypothalamus. <laughs> I'm Spartacus. <laughs> Let's try it again. <laughs> Speaking of tears, now I've got... <laughs> say hypothalamus again <laughs> well i know i have to do it thank you for being able to say it without it sounding like you're going to then present it with some hot dish <laughs> <laughs> hypothalamus hot dish oh goodness <laughs> so many outtakes so long of an outtake it's all going to be about this i'm going to cut this all together <laughs> Because <laughs> seriously, what the hell? What the hell, you? <laughs> what the hell, me? <laughs> oh, God. Hypothalamus. I Hypothalamus. Can't even do Thalamus. I can't Thalamus. even do it again. Hypothalamus, come on. I can say the f***ing word. One more day above the roses. <laughs> Would you like some hot dish with these roses? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I brought by a casserole. <laughs> oh no. Okay, we're done. <laughs>